Welcome to the 62nd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books of Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a wide range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the pandemic remains relatively stable with over 100,000 documented new cases a day and approximately 300 daily deaths. The epicenter has moved from the Northeast westward, but the pattern is the same. Lots of transmission with fewer deaths than in the past, and most of them occurring in three groups, the unvaccinated, the elderly, and those on immunocompromising medications or cancer chemotherapy. As we predicted in previous episodes, the more transmissible variants are slowly replacing the ones already entrenched with the number of cases from BA.4 and BA.5 growing. Breakthrough infections are relatively common and herd immunity has become a dream that is no longer a possibility given the combination of the new variants being able to overcome people's levels of immunity and people's antibody levels falling in the months following infection or vaccination. An interesting paper from the prestigious journal Nature compared two possible reasons that people die less often after vaccination than following infection. On one hand, they hypothesized it could be the result of the antibodies the vaccine generates being better able to attack the virus and reduce the severity of the illness than the immunity following infection. But on the other hand, it could be that the antibodies following vaccination are better able at at preventing disease in people and stopping them from becoming infected in the first place. And much to my surprise, the researchers found that avoiding infection in the first place appears to be four times as important as preventing death once the person is sick. As such, even in people who have been infected in the past, This adds another reason to get vaccinated, although they will have some immunity from having been sick. Now that the risk of dying from COVID is reduced for people who are healthy and vaccinated, there's a growing concern among listeners about long COVID. Can you give them an update? Jeremy, this concern is validated by the most recent research. Although it's difficult to ascertain exactly what is long COVID, given how diverse the symptoms can be, and how broadly they overlap with other healthcare issues. Current estimates are that difficulties can persist in up to 30% of people for months after an acute episode. The most recent CDC number is that one in five people experience long-term problems. For that reason, I found the report from the journal Nature interesting. In this paper, researchers demonstrated that the risk of long COVID 
is much higher in people who are vaccinated and become sick compared to people who have received the vaccine and develop a breakthrough infection. Furthermore, when they compared two groups of people, those with breakthrough infections and those with similar vaccination status, but no new infection, they found a much higher incidence of long COVID in those who experienced the breakthrough infection, implying that rather than the vaccine or environmental factors contributing to long COVID, it's just the infection itself. A logical question that several listeners have asked is whether taking Paxlovid will reduce the likelihood of an infected person developing long COVID following infection. The answer at this point is we don't know. But what we do know is that the majority of cases of long COVID happen in people who don't require hospitalization. So avoiding the worst of the disease isn't a guarantee of protection once you are infected. At the same time, we also know that severe disease is associated with higher incidence of long COVID, so maybe Paxlovid could help. And of course, researchers still are uncertain about the origin of long COVID. If it relates to ongoing virus in people's body after infection, reducing the viral load by taking Paxlovid could theoretically help. If it's an immune or vascular outcome infection, that could be triggered regardless of viral load as we see with allergies. More on this in future episodes. In our last Coronavirus The Truth episode, we discussed the revised WHO estimate of 15 million deaths and how India, as an example, has experienced five times more people dying than reported. A listener wants to know of whether the same is true for Africa. Jeremy, unfortunately, we can't be sure. There's definitely evidence that many deaths were not counted but there's also evidence that the mortality rate was much lower in these African countries than one would have predicted given the low vaccination rate. According to the CDC, Africa is the continent with the lowest mortality rate in the world. Of course, that's excluding Antarctica. Lots of explanations have been given, including the relative low age of the population in Africa, the warm weather, low population density, or even some type of cross-resistance from other infections. Overall, the 47 governments in the region have reported 250,000 deaths, with the WHO estimating the actual number to be approximately 350,000. What's most fascinating is the new WHO data on the estimated total number of cases, which obviously is the denominator in calculating a mortality rate. Based on definitive laboratory testing, these countries have reported a total of 11.9 million confirmed infections. But in contrast, measuring blood antibody levels, the WHO has calculated that the actual number of cases is 70 times higher. Of the 1.1 billion people in the area, it's estimated now that more than half have had an infection and generated immunity, with an additional 20% now having been vaccinated. As such, even with the upward revision in the number of deaths, the mortality rate, that's deaths per case, remains relatively low. As a result of the current broad immunity and a low death rate among those infected, the WHO predicts that mortality among these African nations is expected to be 23,000 total deaths this year, less than 10% of what occurred 
last year. In a study published recently, South African researchers reported that 98% of people in that nation had antibodies, either from past infection or vaccination. As such, South Africa's COVID strategy going forward will be to maximally protect older individuals through vaccination, regardless of whether they've had a COVID infection in the past or not. An unexpected and seemingly counterintuitive finding coming out of the WHO calculation of Africa's mortality rates was that the chances of dying from COVID were twice as high in the high income and upper middle income countries, particularly those of Southern Africa than they were in the lower income nations. There's no way to be sure of the reason and it could reflect a combination of higher temperatures in the poorer countries and more indoor gatherings in the wealthier nations. But one hypothesis offered by public health officials was that it reflected the greater number of chronic disease comorbidities that come from higher income, including diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. Robbie, a listener wrote that she felt fine now, but still tested positive for COVID 10 days after coming down with an infection. What does that mean? Jeremy, this is a great question because it highlights the tremendous variation in how an infection can impact different individuals. As you may remember from prior episodes, the CDC has recommended isolation for five days after symptoms appear. But what should you do if you're asymptomatic but continue to test positive after that? Remember that although the COVID home test kit resembles a pregnancy test, the all or none outcome that in general holds true when it comes to pregnancy doesn't apply when it comes to COVID. And contrary to measuring viral loads in COVID, there's no such thing as 10% pregnant. Relative to COVID, there are important gradations when it comes to how infected you are as measured by viral load. We know that higher viral load was correlated with increased severity of disease and greater likelihood of transmitting the infection to others. As such, the paucity of symptoms this listener is experiencing might indicate a relatively low viral load with a reduced risk of spreading the virus to others. At the same time, a positive home antibody test means that there is persistent virus, so the risk isn't zero. Before delving deeper into her question, let me point out that she has the opposite problem of what most worries public health experts. In general, the home antibody test, unlike the more complex PCR test that must be done in a laboratory, can be negative even when someone is infected but they have low viral counts. Relative to her clinical course, a positive test, particularly early in the course of the disease, almost always indicates contagiousness. Having said that, infectivity drops in nearly all people after eight days. And even though a positive test persists at 10 days, the chances of transmission become relatively low. For these reasons, public health experts recommend that you should stop isolation after five days if you test negative, indicating a low viral load, or after 10 days, assuming you wear an N95 or equivalent mask until you test negative. 
Overall, testing is better than nothing, but far from an exact and predictable science. Research has shown that 54% of people will test positive on the home rapid antibody between days five and eight, but that number drops rapidly after day eight. Complicating the question is another research data set on transmissibility. And here, various studies differ. As an example, a report from Boston University showed that only 17% of vaccinated college students had culturable virus after five days, while one from the Massachusetts General Hospital found that more than 50% of people had culturable virus at day five and 25% still did at day eight. Putting all these findings together, it's reasonable to conclude that early in the course of the disease, a positive test almost always means that a person has an infection and is at risk of transmitting the virus to others. In contrast, a negative test may be misleading. Late in the course, a negative test usually means that the person is no longer contagious. But what to make of a positive test, particularly between days six and 10, remains controversial. Maybe the person isn't infectious, but maybe they are. Possibly they should continue to isolate, especially if there are immunocompromised individuals around them. And the best science continues to recommend mask wearing until the test becomes negative. In general, immunocompromised people and unvaccinated individuals remain contagious longer than people with strong immunity, since their bodies have diminished ability to eliminate the virus and take longer to mount a strong immune response. Jeremy, it would be great if science could produce clear answers to every question, but particularly with this virus, that's rarely the case. Putting the pieces together, home testing tends to underestimate the chances of a person being contagious early in the infection and overestimate it at the end. But science can't answer whether individuals should play the odds or take the most conservative actions. That's an ethical and societal issue, not one with an absolute answer. Along those lines, Robbie, your most recent Forbes article titled Why Omicron is About to Make America Act Immorally Inappropriately Accessible Through Your Website, RobertPerlMB.com, uh, has had close to a million readers. What did you say? As we discussed in the last Coronavirus The Truth episode, the majority of Americans have concluded that the pandemic now poses minimal risk to themselves. The reason for this view is the Omicron variant. The strain, it's a unique virus from multiple perspectives. It's highly transmissible. Estimates are that one person can give it to between six and 15 people on average. And it's not seasonal, meaning that unlike the flu that arrives in December and disappears sometime in the spring, COVID now is a year round event. And unlike previous strains, Omicron breaks through prior immunity, regardless of whether the person is vaccinated or has recovered from an infection. At the same time, for most people who are vaccinated, boosted, and in good health, an infection isn't life-threatening. That means that the restrictive steps that people took in the past, 
increasingly are being seen by a growing number of individuals as excessive. With that as a foundation, in this article, I apply the research on culture to this specific viral threat. Culture is the values, the norms, the beliefs that people have. It's based upon how others around them act. It's not based upon scientific data. Culture doesn't evolve because someone decides that it should. Instead, it changes as the circumstances of our lives become altered. And COVID-19 has just done that. I point out in the piece that a virus this transmissible and capable of breaking through prior immunity won't disappear. Herd immunity, which some policy experts had predicted would eliminate this virus, that's not going to happen. This means that most likely for the foreseeable future, we'll continually know people who are infected. In fact, some epidemiologists have estimated that as many as 100 million Americans may become ill with Omicron this year. Putting the likelihood that this virus will be with us for years, if not decades, and that the chances of dying from it, if you're relatively healthy, are most similar to the flu, we can predict that the values, norms, and behaviors of people will change next year, and even more so the year after compared to last year. Jeremy, we're likely to see lots of couples who today are planning relatively small outdoor weddings, deciding to have the 200 person indoor event they always wanted, despite the reality that a dozen people could become infected and a guest who was older or immunocompromised could die. And people with symptoms, they'll either choose not to get a COVID test at all, or they may decide to go to work and participate in planned weekend getaways despite a positive test once their symptoms have subsided. Today, most Americans would see these types of actions as inappropriate and immoral, given the reality that we're going to have to live with this virus long into the future. The choices of yesterday won't be the ones of tomorrow, despite the added danger they create. Jeremy, given what we know about this virus now, how likely are you to take your son to an Iowa football game this year? And if you were invited to a friend's wedding and you knew there'd be 200 people at an indoor venue, would you go? And what precautions, if any, would you take? Ravi, I would totally go to a football game or wedding and take my son. Uh, given what we know now, we're all going to get COVID at some point, and it's a matter of when, not if. Uh, COVID is endemic at this point and will be with us from now on. Um, we need to live our lives, see our friends and families, et cetera. You know, I want my son and all young children to have the kind of experiences like going to football games, birthday parties, weddings, family gatherings that, you know, kids are supposed to have. Look at how many kids did the, you know, homeschool on Zoom or didn't see friends or family in person for years and the kind of damage to their education and social development it could have had. Knowing the risks of COVID in children, I'm much more concerned with him having a normal childhood filled with the kind of experiences kids are supposed to have than I am him getting a virus that he's, you know, inevitably going to get anyway and most likely will recover from just fine. Robbie, as you know, I'm very interested in new developments relative to young kids. What's new? Jeremy, unlike in our last show where the news was completely positive, 
This time it's mixed. The negative data relate to the psychological health of kids, just as you've pointed out, something you and I have worried about for more than a year. A survey that New York Times reporters did among 362 school counselors nationwide found that a large number of students were, quote, frozen socially and emotionally at the age they were when the pandemic began. 94% of the counselors said that a growing number of students were showing signs of anxiety and depression, and close to 75% said that students were having increased difficulty resolving conflicts with friends. Two years of missed social development and lack of in-person social interactions have stunted their emotional and social development. The positive news continues to be related to vaccines. Pfizer reported that for children under the age of five, a three-dose regime was 80% effective at preventing symptomatic COVID-19 and that it proved safe and well-tolerated. Based on these results, the FDA has given the company approval to begin vaccination for the 19 million kids aged six months to six years. It also gave Moderna similar approval for its two-dose regime that we discussed in our last Coronavirus The Truth program. The two protocols are different, with the Pfizer vaccine being a three microgram dose spread out over at least 11 weeks, as opposed to its recommendation for kids 12 and older, where it uses a 30 microgram uh, dose, which is 10 times that, and only requires two shots spread three weeks apart. For children in the middle ages, five to 11, the dose that's used is 10 micrograms, three weeks apart, with a potential boost of five months later. In contrast to Pfizer's protocol, Moderna uses a higher dose of 25 micrograms, but at least at present only requires two shots spread a month apart. Parents are likely to be uncertain whether they want their child to get a higher dose per shot through Moderna, but only require two shots, or a lower dose through Pfizer requiring three doses spread out over a longer time period. The good news is that whatever they choose, the vaccines seem safe, and effective. Although many parents can't wait to vaccinate their children, overall uptake in this age group is unlikely to be extremely high. Even among kids aged 5 to 11, only 29% are vaccinated. And that's as opposed to 75% of people aged 40 to 49 and 88% of adults over the age of 75. The CDC has emphasized that unvaccinated children face major risks from infection even if the frequency of these negative outcomes occurring is low, currently COVID is the fifth leading cause of death in kids age one to four. Robert, you mentioned in previous shows about efforts to develop a vaccine this fall specifically for Omicron. How's that coming? The information remains preliminary. Moderna announced that it was working in a hybrid vaccine that would include both the mRNA needed to produce the spike protein on the original COVID strain, as well as additional mRNA specific to the changed pro spike proteins on the most current Omicron strains. They said that this hybrid, this combined vaccine appears seven times as effective as the current vaccine against Omicron. However, the actual research has not been peer reviewed and it hasn't even been published. So it's too early to determine what the CDC will recommend, assuming that the FDA approves this hybrid vaccine 
targeted for late summer, early fall. Given how different this newest generation virus is, the Omicron, compared to the original one, and the growing number of breakthrough infections, a modified booster has seemed likely for a while, and you and I have talked about it on the show for several months. But of course, there's no reason to believe that this virus won't continue to mutate and that the next generation of variants won't be able to elude this vaccine as well. In fact, based on preliminary data from South Africa, the BA.4 and BA.5 variants, that as we said earlier, are now becoming more prevalent in the United States, they've shown an ability, a greater ability, to evade the current circulating antibodies that people have and increase the likelihood of breakthrough infections. The good news continues to be that among relatively healthy individuals who are vaccinated and boosted, even with the original vaccine, severe disease and death is relatively rare today. Robbie, in addition to these mRNA vaccines, I keep hearing about uh, the next vaccine that is likely to be approved. How is its approach more similar to conventional vaccines and uh, what can you tell us about it? The vaccine, Jeremy, that you're referencing is the Novavax vaccine that's currently being considered by the FDA for approval. And we've, as we've explained to listeners, the mRNA technology injects messenger RNA, which is the code to instruct the ribosomes in our cells to manufacture the specific proteins that are found on the spikes of the current or past coronavirus. This Novavax vaccine instead injects the actual spike proteins themselves after these proteins are grown in insect cells, purified, and packaged in nanoparticles. The final product closely resembles a virus, but without any risk of causing infection. Both this new vaccine and the currently used Pfizer and Moderna vaccines depend on a person's immune system to make antibodies against these spike proteins. But the Novavax vaccine does it directly without the intermediate step of using genetic material to generate these proteins. As you said, this approach is used in other vaccines, like the ones given to prevent infection from hepatitis B and to protect people against shingles. The Novavax vaccine hasn't been shown to be any more effective than the currently used Moderna or Pfizer, and there's evidence that the risk of myocarditis may be higher, similar to what we saw with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So you may be wondering, Jeremy, why an additional vaccine, even one being considered by the FDA at this point, would be recommended? And there are two possible, at least hypothetical, justifications. The first reason approval could make sense is if you believe that many Americans today refuse to be vaccinated, due to the newness of the mRNA technology? If so, having a more traditional vaccine, one that does not involve genetic material, could theoretically lead unvaccinated people to roll up their sleeves. The second justification is that we have evidence that when we mix and match various vaccines, it seems to increase the immunity, the total overall immunity that's generated. Although both of these reasons are hypothetically possible, there's no data yet to confirm either. The FDA's role is to assess the safety and efficacy of a vaccine, not how it should be used. That will be a decision for the CDC. 
Already this vaccine has been given to people across Europe and in other parts of the world. Most likely approval will depend on how confident the FDA's experts are that the myocarditis risk isn't any greater than with other shots, or at least that the risk is less than what happens to people following infection. A decision should be coming soon. The listener wanted to know if there's any update on monkeypox. Jeremy, as we discussed in the last episode, monkeypox remains a global concern, but it won't be anywhere near the threat that Omicron has been. There are three reasons for this limited concern. The first is that transmission usually requires very close physical contact, and rather than spreading exponentially from one individual to many people, monkeypox goes from one person to one person. The second is that most people have some immunity against monkeypox from having been vaccinated against smallpox in their youth. And finally, asymptomatic disease with transmission doesn't happen with monkeypox in the same way that it happens with COVID. And there's a long time period between becoming infected with monkeypox and becoming very sick. In total, there have been approximately 150 total cases in the United States. For these reasons, in contrast to COVID, contact tracing offers a great opportunity to contain and eradicate the disease. With an airborne infection like COVID, high transmissibility and short incubation period, it's almost impossible to find all of the individuals that one person infects. With monkeypox behaving more similar to a sexually transmitted disease, identifying all contacts, vaccinating them, and ensuring they don't pass the virus to others is possible. Although so far most infections have come from men having sex with men, there's no evidence so far that this virus couldn't be spread just as easily between men and women or through a variety of other intimate activities that aren't sexual. A listener was interested in the data you discussed two episodes ago about how the U.S. spends so much more on medical care than other nations and yet lags the other 12 most industrialized countries in clinical outcomes. Uh, He wondered if cancer might be an exception. I, too, heard from people who felt that our nation, despite doing a poor job at preventing disease and managing chronic illness, remains the best place in the world to get medical care with a life-threatening disease like cancer. However, the data doesn't support that assumption. As in most areas of medical care, our nation spends twice as much per person on cancer care as the other 22 high-income countries in the world. And based on an analysis from researchers at Yale and published in the JAMA Health Forum, our outcomes are only slightly better on average and nowhere near world-leading. The US spends over $200 billion a year, or $600, per American, while these other nations average $300 per person. According to the lead author, Ryan Chow, quotes, there's a common perception that the US offers the most advanced cancer in the world. Our system is touted for developing new treatments and getting them to patients more quickly than other nations. But as he showed, the outcomes aren't impressive. In fact, six countries, Australia, Finland, Iceland, Japan, Korea, and Switzerland, not only have lower cancer mortalities, but also lower spending than the US. Even when the researchers looked at malignancies like lung cancer, where several countries would be expected to have a much higher death rate due to higher rates of smoking, the opposite was true. And when you correct for smoking as a variable, nine countries have lower smoking adjusted 
cancer death rates than in the US. The authors of the study point to lax regulation of cancer drug approval and unconstrained drug pricing as contributing to our relatively high cost of cancer care without any significant improvement in outcomes. Rabbi, a listener asked, almost everyone I know has gotten sick with COVID lately. A few of them have been relatively sick for several days, but none of them have needed hospitalization or risk death. How risky is it for people to get COVID now? Jeremy, this is an excellent question, but trying to answer it demonstrates the complexity of this infection. And as we've tried to tell people, and we try to tell policy experts for over a year, one size doesn't fit all. To calculate the risk, we need to know how many people are getting sick and how many of them are dying. The number of deaths is the easiest to ascertain. They are currently hovering around 300 a day. The most likely reason for the relatively low mortality, despite a high incidence of disease, is broad immunity. At least based on blood tests for antibodies, 94% of people have some degree of protection, whether from vaccination or prior infection. What is known is that the documented number of cases are around 100,000 a day. But we also know that this is a major understatement. The data doesn't include people who are asymptomatic, the tens of thousands of individuals with symptoms who choose not to be tested, and those people who test positive using a home antibody kit, but have no way of reporting this information to national databases. As such, with 300 deaths in 100,000 people, the highest the mortality could be would be 0.3%, and it's more likely somewhere around 0.1%, or one in a thousand. And among those who die, the overwhelming majority are either unvaccinated, elderly with multiple chronic diseases, or immunocompromised. At the same time, there are lots of people who are knocked on their backs by the infection, particularly when they have yet to be boosted or experiencing waning immunity long after their last shot. And long COVID is frequently seen in people with breakthrough infections, not requiring hospitalization or intensive medical care. As such, risk is relative to a variety of factors, and one answer doesn't fit all. Jeremy, after more than 60 Coronavirus The Truth episodes, you had a recent bout of COVID. For listeners who have yet to become infected, what can you tell them about your experience? Robbie, what's crazy to me is what you said just a little bit ago. I know more people that have gotten COVID in the last couple of weeks than I have the entire pandemic. Uh, I never lost my sense of taste or smell, but I did have a fever, ache, sore throat, and cough. Uh, the aches and fever lasted a few days, and the cough is still lingering a little bit, just like what happens with cold sometimes, where you feel fine, but the cough sticks around for a week or two. For me, the worst symptom uh, was how tired I was and am. All I wanted to do was sleep, and no matter how much I slept, I never really felt rested or rejuvenated like I normally do after sleeping. Even now, a week and a half later, I feel pretty much back to normal, except I'm still so fatigued. Uh, I mowed my lawn a couple days ago and felt like I had just run a marathon. Um, I'm still extremely tired and want to sleep all the time. And like I said, when I do, I just don't feel rested when I wake up. My dad's best friend had the same thing with the lingering fatigue, and he told me that his lasted around two weeks after he was fully recovered from COVID. Uh, I've heard this from quite a few other people, too, that the, the fatigue is the longest lasting symptom and it's what hits people the hardest. You know, I felt much worse in the past when I've had the flu I mean, I've had worse fevers and respiratory symptoms with other diseases before. Uh, but I've never experienced this kind of fatigue with a virus before. And that's what stuck out to me the most. 
Robbie, listeners continue to thank us for focusing on the broader issues of healthcare and bringing the same honest analysis in these areas as we do when it comes to coronavirus. What can you tell them? Jeremy, as you know, I'm a plastic surgeon who focused on correcting congenital facial anomalies. One of the most complex is completely creating an ear for patients with a medical problem called microtia. Currently requires removing three cartilaginous ribs and sculpting them into a framework, trying to duplicate the ear's normal folds. Now researchers have developed an alternative method. A 20-year-old woman received a 3D printed ear implant manufactured from her own cartilaginous cells. Only a small piece of her cartilage was used. The cells were isolated and grown in a slurry of nutrients until there were billions of cells. These were then mixed with a collagen-based bio-ink and injected into a biodegradable mold. The design was an exact replication of the opposite side. The process resulted in a superior match and allowed the operation to be done in a fraction of the time. Of course, in many ways, the ear cartilage framework process is the easiest to construct since cartilage doesn't have blood vessels running through it. But this result, it's a vital first step. And this technology ultimately could lead to the creation of complex organs like kidneys that can make transplantation simpler, easier to access and eliminate the risk of rejection. Theoretically, dialysis is the standard treatment for kidney failure could become a thing of the past using 3D printing of live cells. Unfortunately, it's likely to be a decade or more before anything close to this is possible. Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, I was disturbed to learn that CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is planning to suppress hospital safety data collected during the pandemic on such vital areas as infection rates, falls, and incidents of bed sores. I recognize that overwhelming demand for hospital beds and shortage of staff secondary to COVID made patient safety difficult to achieve. But whatever the data shows, that's what actually happened to people. And it serves as vital pieces of information for the future. And some hospitals, despite having similar staffing issues, did perform better than others. This controversy reminds me of my experience when I first became the CEO in Kaiser Permanente. For years, quarterly quality performance data was provided to each clinical department about the performance of each of the clinicians. But to protect the egos of those whose outcomes were poor, the names were deleted from the shared data sheets. The cultural message was that failing to achieve the best clinical outcomes was acceptable. And the opportunity for people to learn from the individuals who scored the highest was lost. There's a tendency in various situations, particularly in the context of pay for performance, to view data on clinical outcomes as win-lose. Either I'm above you or you're above me, rather than seeing it as opportunities to increase the performance of all. As a result of unblinding the data, we were able to repel Kaiser Permanente from the middle of the pack to number one of a thousand healthcare organizations based on the National Committee for Quality Improvement or NCQA rankings. The result is that we moved the process from one of data reporting being competitive and financially driven to one that was based on group excellence and learning for all. 
refusing to disclose the information, I think it's an error, even if that is what hospitals would like. There are challenges that come from data transparency, but hiding information for fear of embarrassment poses far greater dangers. The numbers, whatever they may be, reflect the truth of what happened to patients during that year. We need to be able to find out and then together figure out how could we have done better, not hide the details and pretend that everything was as good as it could have been. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth. Have a great day.